Hello and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Professor Sir Jeff Palmer, OBE, the first academic to feature on our podcast. He was also the first black professor in Scotland, having moved up to Scotland from London to undertake a PhD in the School of Brewing and Distilling at Harriet Watt University. He's achieved international acclaim for his discoveries in laboratories and his research revolutionised the way beer is now made. But alongside his academic work, Sir Jeff is a prominent human rights activist and he's authored articles and books on race relations and the history of slavery. Originally from Jamaica, our conversation starts with humble beginnings and the experience of immigration through the eyes of a teenager from the Windrush generation. We discuss chance and prosperity through unexpected circumstances, as well as racism, activism and black history. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So, so Jeff Palmer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> There, there's lots that I would like to discuss with you today, Sir Jeff. So I'd like to start with talking to your early career. Um, actually, no, even before that, your earlier education and arriving in the UK. So you were part of the Windrush generation. You were born in Jamaica and you came over to the UK um, as a teenager. Your mum came ahead of you. So what did you know of the UK before you arrived here? Well, um, like most Jamaican boys or or, or children at the time, I went to what was called a church school. And you're walking to school every day and church three times every Sunday. The day you go to morning service, Sunday school and night service on the one day. So uh, that was my life in terms of my education. You, You just went to school and you were taught to read and write. It was reading, writing and arithmetic. Very Scottish in, yeah. in a sense. And one or two of the teachers works at Scottish relations. And therefore, in a way, that's what I knew about Britain. I knew about Britain through the church and the school. And did you have much correspondence with your mother? Because obviously she came over ahead of you. So did you hear much about her experiences before you came over? Well, she left in 1951, mm-hmm. and the usual thing then was the air letters, the blue air letters. And, you know, I used to wait for those. The postman would arrive, and I would run out and look for the blue air letters because that would be from my mother. She was the only person abroad because she left me with her sisters. Mm-hmm. And she had about eight or nine. There were so many of them, I can't remember exactly. Oh, wow. And we were all living in the same house with my grand-aunt. And then one year later actually said, you're coming to London to be with me. And then my aunts arranged my fares, both to Liverpool and then to London, because I arrived in Liverpool into London. And therefore, that was it. That's how we lived. We lived in a way where some people, all my family now and other people said, weren't you emotionally upset to leave? And when you met your mother, did you not feel a great sort of 
emotion of meeting her again. I said, no, um, because when you live in a very practical way, you're not really missing anything. And I didn't feel deprived in any way. My aunt cared for me, my grandaunt, this fair-skinned lady, when I was leaving. And I've not said this before in an interview, I've just been thinking about it now, that when I was leaving, she called me over. It was about 8 o'clock at night, 1955, March, end of February, because the trip took 10 days. And she, she just called me over. And when, you know, auntie called you, everybody went. You know, you didn't sort of say, no, I'm not coming. I was packed to leave. And she just called me over and she said, take off your shirt. And I was ready to, to, to go to the plane. So I took off my shirt and she took some newspapers, which she was reading, and wrapped my chest and tied it with string. And I just put my shirt back on. And I left. She never would say goodbye. Mm. And um, it was only later, you know, remember now I'm leaving Jamaica about 10 o'clock at night, flying to New York, and then getting the boat from New York to Liverpool, and then getting the train from Liverpool to Paddington. Now, she put that paper on me uh, because she was, I'm coming to England, so I'll be cold. Oh, really? <laughs> That's right. And it, it didn't occur to her within the whole thing that the trip would be 10 days. But again, to me, when I talk to students and other people, I said, now, that's why I'm a part of my confidence, because that's my sense of belonging. I'm not easily shifted, because with it, it, this wasn't giving me thousands of pounds or giving me a car or, um, or, or, or educating me in a post school. It was her caring for me. And that was a, a, not just an expression, that she, she actually did that. So to me, I, I didn't take off because everybody was in such awe of her. I flew, say, to New York. And it's when I got on the boat and the boat was sailing the, down the Hudson River, you know, the Ascania, my boat, that I sort of looked around and thought, I better take this newspaper off. <laughs> Because I don't think she could get me now. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask how long you were wearing it for. Uh, I, I wore it when I got on the boat and met the ship in New York and it was sailing down the river. I looked around and thought, well, there's no way she can reprimand me for taking it off. Oh, funny. And, and, and I just took it off. Yeah. But that was my recollection. And when I got to Liverpool after about 10 days... I got there, I, it was, as I said, the Ascania, I got off and I looked around and I thought, where's Paddington? <laughs> no idea where it was. And I asked and I got on a train and my mother was standing there, but I didn't recognize her because she'd gone, you know, from 51, 55 and she, I changed and she changed, mm -hmm. but she still recognized me, oh, that's uh, lucky. but I wouldn't have recognized her. Yeah. And that was then arrived in the UK. 
And the expectation when you arrived was that you would go with your mother to work, wasn't it? But yes, uh, um, right. at, at which point you realised that you had to be in school because you were, what, what was it, one month short of being allowed to leave school? That's you, right. Yeah. I was 14 years and 11 months yeah. when I arrived. But my mother and I hadn't thought about that. And I didn't know I was coming here to go to work. I don't know what I was coming here for. Okay. All I knew was coming with my mother. So I didn't think I was going to go to school. I didn't think I was going to go to work. I may have thought maybe more school than work. Mm -hmm. But um, it was when she was, we spent the night, she's had one, one room and I slept on one side of it and she slept on the other and she woke me up early. And, and she said, get up, boy, you know, so she used to talk. <laughs> um, get washed, get dressed, have something to eat because we're going to work. And I, I didn't say anything because, again, it was her 86 pounds she paid <laughs> to bring me here. And um, I just got up, did what she said. And when we got to the door, and it was a place called Belita Villas in, in London, near Caledonian Road Tube Station. And there was a man standing there. And the long and short of it, he just said, is, is that Godfrey Palmer? And, he, and she said, yes, that's my son. And he said, well, you're going to my mother. And mother says, we're going to work. And she said, you can go, but he can't. He's not 15. And there was a great shock to my mother because all she was thinking of was her 86 pounds. She wanted back. And that's until she died in 2003. We always joked about it, you know, this 86 pounds, because whenever I didn't do anything she wanted, like even when she rang Edinburgh, you know, um, say 2000, and she would be saying, if you don't come to London, you know, I want my 86 pound back. <laughs> um, I could have, I've given her probably infinitely more than that, but that 86 pound was not redeemable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, na you narrowly made it into school, your education was was obviously very different to the UK system. So it, you had an interesting arrival into the education system as well, didn't you? Tell me about that. Well, you know, the, the point was then with the man at the door, he, he just threatened, well, it was almost a threat. He said, because my mother was saying, you know, um, one month, you know, it's ridiculous. So I can keep him at home for a month. Mm -hmm. And the man says, no, he's got to go to school. And it is that insistence that why I'm talking to you today, because my mother then had to take me to the local, it was a comprehensive, it was probably one of the only comprehensives in London at the time, in my area. And they gave me a test. I didn't even know what a test was in that sense, but they gave me a test. And the document which they gave my mom said, you know, I was ESN. I was educationally subnormal. And they recommended the next school. And that was Shelburne Road Secondary Modern. And I went there. And the headmaster again, again, it's all this luck. It's all this chance. Because when I went to Shelburne Road, the headmaster says, well, I can't take you for a month. Because you would ruin my register. So just that statement is why I'm sitting here, because he, he said, you've got to stay until summertime, that's June. And my mother objected, but there's nothing she could do. 
and um, I stayed for the summer term. And had I not stayed for the summer term, then I wouldn't have played cricket. And the games master took me for a trial, thinking I was quite good. He saw me playing in the playground. And he took me for a trial, and the next day he came back and said, you're playing for London. It was a London trial, I didn't know that. And because I played for London from a secondary modern school, because that was a prerogative of grammar school boys, playing in the London schoolboy cricket team, it appeared in the Islington Evening News, or the Islington Gazette. So it appeared in the Islington Gazette, and the local headmaster of the grammar school saw this article about this young boy playing for London, who is at Shelburne Road Secondary Board, and the, the headmaster of the grammar school had me transferred <laughs> to the grammar school. He rang up the headmaster and contacted my mother and said he wants me at Highbury County. And I didn't know what was going on, but I went to Highbury School, had an interview with the headmaster. My mom was there complaining about her 86 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> And um, in the end, she relented. And I think the headmaster gave her five pounds. I don't know what it was for. But that's how I went to Hyper County. I didn't pass an 11 plus or anything. Um, in fact, I was 15. So I stayed at Highbury from 1955 until 1958. And the play against the opposition teams, I didn't know who they were. I just got in a coach, you know, and drove with the other boys. And I, I remember once I came back and my mom said to me, um, where did you go today? And I said, well, I went to this big place, you know, there was a lot of grass and a little boy looked after me, you know, he had a straw hat and I was very sorry for him wearing this straw hat, you know, because I was, and then he took me to his room and he had this big room and there were like 20 beds in it or something like that. And, but he was really nice. And it was later on, I found out that was Eton. <laughs> and that, that was the fixture. So the fixture of the London schoolboy cricket team was Eton Harrow Winchester oh. and Middlesex Colts. So I was playing against these guys thinking they were so poor because they were wearing straw hats. Oh, really? <laughs> so, <laughs> So, again, you know, this is the story of my life. It's, it's all these little things happen. And I'm going through a system, which it didn't faze me. People say, well, I think, Alex, I was asked um, when you're meeting white people or something for the first time in life. The only white person I've ever met in my life was the minister of the church. But for some reason, when I came to London, I wasn't phased by seeing so many white people because... The culture in Jamaica was so British that when you actually saw the people, it wasn't a big deal to me. In fact, I was very surprised to see white people cleaning the streets um, because then I didn't think white people did that. Really? Because that wasn't in my experience. Right. I, I could imagine white people owning shops and, and things like that, being the owners. It hadn't occurred to me that white people then had to do menial jobs as well. So that was a surprise to, to a lot of us Jamaicans who came because we'd not seen that before. 
But other than that, nothing really bothered me. I'd like to fast forward a couple of decades. Uh, no because, problem. Uh, so cricket obviously played a very influential role in opening doors in terms of your education, which has yeah. obviously contributed to the, the career that you've now led. You're, you're six times a doctor. Your mm-hmm. first doctorate was from the University of Edinburgh in 1967, and you've since been awarded four honorary doctorates at Abertay mm-hmm. University, the Open University... University of West Indies, as well as Harriet Watt in Edinburgh. And yeah, plus, um, Le- plus Leicester, don't leave them out. Plus Leicester University, <laughs> apologies. And, and above all of that, right. you're, you're also a Doctor of Science, which is technically a level above a PhD. So, mm-hmm. and, and with all of that, you are also the first black professor in Scotland. And all of your work has been in the brewing and distilling industry. And Mm -hmm. I also had to write this down so that I uh, read it out correctly. (laughs) But you were awarded from the American Society of Brewing Chemists the Award Mm -hmm. of Distinction, which I understand in layman's terms is like the Nobel Prize in brewing. Mm -hmm. So you've really been a a trailblazer in the brewing and distilling industry in some uh, developments uh, and the research that you've been involved in and led. And I'm really interested to learn who have been your role models um well my role models really are are not scientists i mean one of my role models is my mother Mm -hmm. because she always kept an eye where i was in that she would always be checking and i think that's very important for young people because some young people who don't realize how much input the parents put into their lives and okay you know if one is middle class it's it's obvious it's not so obvious for some poor working class children because they may be thinking their parents are not like their middle class parent up the road who you know are doing big things they think their mother and father because they're just providing breakfast and and, and looking after them in general that they're not really contributing anything and I, I'd like to say that because my mother was always there. I know where she was and she knew where I was. And that to me was very important. So she's one person who has been very important to me. I don't, believe it or not, I don't have many role models in a sense that there are people who I admire when I was a child in Jamaica. I used to listen to the boxing matches on, on people's radios because people like Joe Louis the boxer, a very old heavyweight champion. I somehow admired him because he was making a statement that he was very good at something. And thus, I used to pay a lot of attention when I heard that he was fighting. Some of the cricketers, like, you know, the three W's, the very famous cricketers, Weeks, Warrell, Walcott. In fact, somebody has just sort of contacted me asking me what I knew about them and I have seen them playing and that's a privilege that I think Weeks has just died and he was 90 odd Sir Everton Weeks so again the, my sort of role models or people that motivated me were, were people like those because they were black people doing well and I didn't know about people more significant in terms of politics and, and things like that. I wasn't much aware, aware of that. 
And and what about your career success? What would you, uh, on reflection now in your retirement, attribute your career success to? I think that in terms of my success in science, and because when I left my school, the grammar school in 1958, I went to work at Queen Elizabeth's College in London, and I was taken by Professor Chapman. And that was my first link with university. I was a junior lab technician, and he took me, and he changed my name. A lot of people don't realize my name is My real name is Godfrey. Yes. And when I went for my interview, he sort of came in and said, what's your name, young man? And I said, Godfrey Henry Oliver Palmer. And he said, can I call you Jeff? And I said, yeah, why not? And that was it. <laughs> you know, my family, my children, the international and the world over called me. Everybody, they called me Jeff. Um, but it was something in those days, people have said to me, did you not object to it? In, in the modern terms of political correctness. But he made no harm, I could see that. And he was the one who got me into university. And when I left there, I had an honours degree in botany. I went back to London. I had no job. I went to the labour exchange and they gave me a job peeling potatoes. So that's what I did. And then I left the potato peeling job to attend two interviews. One was with a politician who told me to go home and grow bananas. And in 19, that's 1964. And, and then that's how my link with Scotland started. Um, because having failed that first interview in 1964, um, December, I saw an advert for the report wanting a PhD student and a very well-known, famous lady called Professor Anna MacLeod, who is very well known in Scotland. She interviewed me and that's why I'm talking to you because after failing with my first interview, I remember arriving in Edinburgh. I knew nothing about Scotland uh, and um, there was this lady sitting in a tweed suit and in fact, I used to pull her behind her back. Tweedy. <laughs> but she never knew. <laughs> and, um, uh, she had a tweed suit and um, smoking senior service cigarette. She had a packet of 50. <laughs> Just on her desk. And all this I found, you know, fascinating. You know, 8 o'clock in the morning or 9 when I arrived. And, and, and she was sitting in front of me. Formidable. It looked like my, my auntie from Jamaica. And she just said, why do you want to do this PhD? And I said, well, better than peeling potatoes. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what to say, because I'd never had an interview like this. And she just said, well, the work is on barley. I, I want you to do some research on barley. I said, fine. I'd never seen a barley degree because they didn't teach it in my degree in botany. So I'm struggling. And then she stopped the interview. And she said, I'm going to take you. And I said, why? <laughs> and she said, for two reasons. I, I won't tell you that one of them is, 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 um, deals with the national politics. 
you know, between Scotland, England and Wales. <laughs> but the other one, she said, when I was telling you about all the industry, she said, um, and, and all the importance of barley and malt, you were looking out the window. <laughs> and she said, that's a very good point in your favour, young man. And I said, why? Because she, it means you won't bother me. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like keen people. And somehow, that's Anna not, will not tell you. But I knew, and this is what we call a wider access. Anna was applying wider access. She looked at my background. She looked at the difficulties I'd experienced. And she made a decision on that bit, not just on my degree. And therefore, she and I worked together in terms of she was my supervisor. And um, within one year, a year and a half, we published our first paper. And the second paper, I think, was in Nature, where we where I changed the concept of how the grain works, or people thought it worked. And um, that development of those concepts led to my work in technology, changing how the industry processed its grain. So two very different uh, job interviews by the sounds of it. Um, yes. One with very overt racism and another one which has been very inclusive and almost giving you an opportunity Absolutely. perhaps despite Absolutely. a poor performance in the interview. And yes. I think that leads us nicely into um, an, another area where you're, you're dedicating a lot of time and energy which is around the activism work you're doing for human rights and racial equality. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on very early on about belonging, and I'd like to come back to the, the concepts of identity and belonging. Um, so, so what is your view on, on belonging? Belonging is, is, is critically important it, because that is what the racists go for. The racists go for your sense of belonging. It is, it, they, didn't, they don't behave like, say, Anna McLeod did. Um, on my on my appearance, she could have made a decision which could have deprived, you know, the the country of the work I've done. What she did was to look at my record. You know, she looked at the difficulties I've had, what I'd achieved, and therefore she made a decision on that. Nothing to do with my colour, my complexion, or anything. And I think that's what we've got to do today. That's what's missing. The point is that my resilience to um, how people make judgments about, you know, non-white people, people like myself, is that I've got my family background. I've also got the way Anna McLeod behaved, you know, in that interview. And therefore, what I've tried to do is to to tell people how important a sense of belonging is. And a sense of belonging includes the people who support you, your relationship with the country you live in, and it also depends on your commitment to that country and to people in general. And that is, sense to me, a sense of belonging. And it allows me to deal with the sense of belonging 
all kinds of things, you know, in my research, you know, when I was doing my research, applying the concepts I, I developed at, at, at Harriet Watts in, in industry, I, I had people who were threatening me, you know, your work better work. If it doesn't work, then you're in trouble. So I had to put my job on the line, developing concepts that has benefited the industry. You know, in other situations where, and this is not only national, this is international. I've got more papers written against my work than for it. Despite the fact my work was being used in industry by the biggest companies in the country. So again, that's the, in fact, I had one boss who actually said to me, I should withdraw my concepts or views because so many people are against you worldwide. And I just said, I said to him, a lot of people thought the world was flat. Hmm. They were wrong. Hmm. And therefore, without a sense of belonging, you can't do that. It isn't about shouting your way out. Even my work on the statues and my work on slavery, the history of slavery, I still have that, where Recently, Edinburgh Council has revised the plaque of Henry Dundas and slavery is now in the revision for the first time on the intended plaque for Henry Dundas's statue in the middle of Edinburgh. Now, because that has happened, and this is just weeks now, not 20 years ago, articles were written in the evening news and in the national newspaper and media responses to that. And one of the, the negative comments in the evening news in Edinburgh said, I was a chemist. So why am I talking about history? The other one was in the national, where somebody said, oh, he's just uh, uh, an academic. And on the media recently, some person wrote, I'm a grain person. So what have I got to do with? And the whole idea is to try to undermine what I was doing. And this is the whole concept that enslaved people, millions of people. It was that view, the view that a black person was only fit to go cut sugarcane and plant tobacco and pick it and to grow coffee. And in the documents I have around this room, um, it, it states that, you know, I have a document from the trial of a, a so-called slave. It wasn't a slave, it was a servant, but you still have academics saying Joseph Knight was a slave in Scotland. And that's one of the great tussles I've got with some academic on the basis that I said he wasn't um, a slave. He was a servant. So Scotland didn't abolish slavery in 1778. Because if you accept that, I feel it undermines the slavery that was in the Caribbean, where black people had a lifespan of less than 10 years. Where, in fact, a slave was described as having no right to life and was property. And that's why the slave owners 
received 20 million compensation for their slaves in 1833-34, when the slaves were emancipated, because the slave owners were losing their property. And therefore, that's 20 million then, it's about 23 billion today. Now, I'm saying that you mustn't compare releasing a servant in Scotland with that slavery, because what it does, it undermines the horror of that slavery. And, 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 and it undermines people need to change because they're saying, well, we had slaves here too. This is one person, one black person in Scotland compared with 800,000 in the Caribbean. And therefore the attack on me is recent attack as well. It's, it's not relevant because my sense of belonging can cope with that. And my, my knowledge can cope with that. The point is that for other people who are being subjected to similar things, black people, you end up with the George Floyd situation in the United States, where a policeman believed or believed that the person he was kneeling on his neck was inferior, had no right to speak. And therefore, that's why the world has responded the way it has. Because what they saw was the crucifixion. And to me, we cannot play around with history for, in a self-serving way. You know, false national pride makes us do all kinds of things like that. You know, you think you're defending the Scottish people. Scottish people don't need that kind of defense. They can take their own history, tell it to them. That, that's my position. Mm. Whereas other people feel they have to be manipulating it to make it not look so bad. And I think that we have to stop. So in terms of my sense of belonging, um, that's, those are just some examples. And that's to do with my work, you know, in science, a four is a four, it has no color. And, and therefore, my work has helped when, for example, Guinness had some trouble in Nigeria. Uh, they asked me to go to help. And, and I did. And we changed the concept of grain use in, in Nigeria. So the local grain could be used to make Guinness, which was unbelievable. Um, and it's because I'm using my science. And that science has no color, it has no race. You know, Guinness picked me because I was probably the best person for the job. There's no sense picking a white guy who, who couldn't have done it. So to me, that is what's important, where we've got to go. We've got to get over this nonsense that, you know, which Hume, the, the philosopher, sitting in the middle of Edinburgh somewhere, said black people are inferior to white people. And, and it was picked up and turned into race. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And that race we still have today. That is the concept on which race is based. And, and somehow I just feel 
that, you know, um, as I say, I can take it because, you know, I'm, I'm okay in a sense, other people can't. And I'll just give you two short stories about how if we don't teach this history properly in schools, it means it's got to be in the curriculum. And it's got to be in what I call the curriculum exactly like maths and physics. So people can, it can be used to change people's attitudes. Because in Edinburgh recently, that was last year, I went to give a talk and the attendant said, a talk, well, what, what time? And I said, two o'clock. And uh, uh, the attendant looked at me and said, it can't be two o'clock because that talk is being given by Professor Sir Jeff Palmer. I can't be Professor Sir Jeff Palmer. That was the point. Because you don't have a black guy called Professor Sir Jeff Palmer. And also at another institution where I wanted to charge my phone and I say to the guy, because I, I knew the people in there, and he said, who did you know? And I said, and I used to know the previous boss. And he said, the previous boss, he said, were you his chauffeur? So again, that's where we are in many ways. And it explains what happened in America. That's where we are with race. And the point is that what I've tried to do with the, with the Scottish Caribbean history is to just to show people how it came about and the justifications for it is, you know, black people can take the sun or they're not as intelligent as us. Simple as that. Mm. And that killed millions of people. So today, the response of the media to a lot of people have contacted me um, is that somehow I'm not, this is not recrimination. This is just that I've been fortunate enough to know a little bit of barley and I know a little bit about this history. But my views on it, is, you'd think it's like 200 years ago, mm. that people are writing in the press to say, I'm just a chemist. It can't be telling you anything about history that's valid. So somehow this has got to get across to the public because I think the Scottish people, when I tell them about their history, what I've just said, the general universal normal repeated response why hasn't anybody told us this before? There's some really powerful stories there, Sir Jeff, and I'm kind of one, kind of feeling like I need to sit and pause and reflect um, <laughs> on what you've just shared. But, you know, the There's... fact is that the reason why it's important in a sense because then people can, can edit, you yeah. know, this is the whole point. It is, but it is why people have contacted me. Mm -hmm. It is because of that thing which happened in America and some people can't understand it. Mm. And we are doing the same in, in, in different ways, you know, and, and, and really if we don't do something, and the media has been critical in this. It's the media who's interviewed and put out stuff and some of it has gone to England. I know some of my friends in Sussex contacted me because they've seen the stuff which was interviewed you know thing 
the interviews in Scotland, they, they've seen that. And, and somehow it is still that somebody, well, I was surprised by it, but not faith. He's just a chemist, don't listen. Or, you know, and, and, and a professor actually saying the same thing. On on the flip side of this, I think there's a there's a sense of this almost collective guilt and shame um, among white people who feel fearful of talking about racial issues because, just like you said, um, why didn't we know this before? We don't understand the issues well enough. So, what advice? Uh, would you give to people like me who don't under- fully understand the experiences, who want to start a conversation but are concerned around perhaps being insensitive or causing offence and want to make sure that they're, they're starting a conversation and educating themselves in the right way? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the great omissions has been the, the teaching of this history in schools. Because, you know, what you're saying is exactly that. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, most people in the country have heard about William Wilberforce. You've heard the name, even if you don't know the details. And what I would say, if you then know, don't know the relationship between Wilberforce and Henry Dundas, the statue is in the middle of Edinburgh, which the debate is about, then that's it. Because Dundas stopped Wilberforce for 15 years from abolishing the slave trade. So all the adulation Wilberforce get, you know, has got over the years, where everybody knows the name, but they don't know exactly what it's about. It's come from Dundas being on the other side, stopping it from doing it for 15 years. So when you walk through St. Andrew's Square, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at somebody who wanted to enslave people because of the money. And he could just see it as a economic necessity. And therefore, I don't want the statue down. Across the road is the statue of uh, uh, the whole of the Earl, I think the Earl of Hopeton, you know, at the bank, the headquarters of the Royal Bank of Scotland. The the Bank of Scotland building is a slave master's house. And the statue is, is Hopeton, who Henry Dundas was married into that family. So just across the world is a tremendous history that mustn't be changed or moved. And if you say, what can you do in order to relate or to try and address, is in fact um, almost to say, yes, this happened. And as I've got a phrase I use where, you know, we cannot change the past, but we can change the consequences for the better. And consequences such as racism, we can change it. And we can change it by first acknowledging that what was said in the past, the justification that black people were inferior, dangerous, um, 
could, could, could work in the sun forever. All these things in our minds, the fears, you know, there were politicians in my day in the 60s, very famous ones, you know, Enoch Powell and, and Nabarro. And Nabarro said, how would you like your little blonde daughter to come home with a big black guy? And that one in his seat. You know, there was another one in, in Smithwick who said, how would you like, a, you know, an N-word for a neighbor? Vote Labour. And he won his seat. And therefore, that's the basis that has given people the, the, the prejudices in their head, where when they react, they're reacting on those images, those views, those fears. And thus, the only one thing an individual can do, I think, is to accept those um, uh, uh, references to the past because they're true. And therefore, what we can say to ourselves, and I said it at the Black Lives Matter uh, meeting in Edinburgh, I was asked to give the first speech. And what I said is, thank you all for coming. And, and thank you on behalf of the millions of people who died because of their color. And I said, they've asked me to thank you. And secondly, what you can do is when you leave this park and anybody ever approaches you with a racial slur, joke, or intimation, tell them to go away. That isn't a great thing. But I said, you if everybody did that, whether they're on a interview panel, or whether you're in a pub, or whether you're in a shop, anywhere, when that starts, you just say, count me out. I don't want to be involved with that. And I think that would cause a significant change. It is not simple for, for in some circumstances because people might be your friends, but it is not hard. Jeff, you've been incredibly generous in your time uh, with me no today. Problem. I'd like to close with one final question, if no I may. Problem. Take your time. <laughs> and um, that is around legacy. And we had a, a quick conversation earlier this week um, to set up this interview. And you said, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to do what I can before I snuff it. Or, or yes. words along those lines. Yes. And right. uh, so that, that is the question that I'd like to close with is what would you like your legacy to be? I'd like it to be people have made little, say, films like yours. Little things like that, where an individual who doesn't have the opportunity, educational opportunities to learn about this history, then programs like yours. It's the media that has caused this stir, not a textbook from a university. And therefore, I'm really appreci appreciative 
of, of what, in fact, the media has done. You know, the media has been criticising, especially over race. I used to be terrified of the media when I was a boy in London uh, because I would be fearful of coming out my house and I look at the, you know, at the, the billboards outside the, the newsagent and there'd be a big sign saying 500 more arrive, 500 more arrive. And that meant black immigrants, everybody knew that. And that I just went back in my house, you know, and then calm myself down and come back out again because I feel those headlines, somebody's gonna kill me today. And therefore, what I hope is there's been a change and this is part of the change. And so the legacy is some of the stuff I've said, um, both in terms of cereals or barley and in terms of trying to explain to people that black people aren't inferior to white people. It was a, it was a, a myth. It was a justification for enslavement. And I thought if I can just get that across to people so that it will change lives for the better. And, you know, we are, Scotland is a diverse society. And a diverse society, you need diverse management. And the story I told, two stories I told, is, is saying that we're not there yet because people can't accept me as being what might degree titles say I am. But it can change. I've worked with Anisius Lodi on a program to try and improve representation in our society. And it was just over two years, we moved from NHS Lothian. This isn't a shop down the road. We've moved from four managers who are BAME to 28. 28. And it's because we've addressed attitudes which before rejected people or, or people didn't quite understand. And, and I, I've got a phrase I use, it's called system consciousness. And people say to me, what does that mean? And it, it applies to all of us. It's about understanding the system, knowing its expectations and its prejudices, etc., and then negotiating it. And it applies to the managers and it applies to the, the, the staff. And that's another thing I've done where I feel it, I'm trying to reduce prejudices so that people can work together. And if we work together as a group, for example, I usually, I was talking to a journalist in London and he said, you know, he drinks beer. And he didn't know who I, I was in that sense. And he's drink, he drank beer and he says in Scotland you produce again this is part of the legacy you know he says he drinks beer you know and I said yeah right I said which brand do you drink and he gave me two brands I can't call the names of my students who kill me who I don't mention um and he, he said um I, I drink x and y and I said yeah they're both my students there's a silence because you see he didn't expect a black guy could teach white guy how to make beer. And thus, that's what we want. It's not complicated. It's about people have expectations which are wrong. 
made a video for the Scottish government called We Are Scotland. And in that video, um, I'm saying similar things that we need a diverse management for a diverse society and that will make it prosperous. And, and that's all I want. And then I'll probably spend the rest of my time in Pennycook <laughs> sitting in the, near the hills, um, sitting in my car and having a, um, a drive and looking at the hills. And, and that's all I want now. I don't want anything more than that. Professor Sir Jeff Palmer, it's been an absolute uh, privilege speaking to you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you and good luck. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast with host Gemma Soul and guest speaker Professor Sir Jeff Palmer, OBE. I loved hearing about Sir Jeff's teenage memories of school and cricket and his voyage from Jamaica, which he recalled so vividly 65 years later. However, when he began to describe his experiences of racism and discrimination, my first emotion was not sadness or anger on his part, but shame and guilt on mine, as a white British woman who's never experienced anything like he has. Shame and guilt is not helpful, And neither is pretending that racism doesn't exist or avoiding a conversation for fear of causing offence. As Sir Jeff said, we can't change history, but we can change its consequences. So start the conversation and listen. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website on www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available across major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.